Whatever job you need to do out there, grab the right tool to get it done. The new F-150 with an available hybrid engine and up to 7.2 kilowatts of pro power on board to power things on the go. It's not a tool you'll hang in a tool shed, but you can certainly use it to build one. The new 2024 Ford F-150. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024. Optional features the owner's manual for important operating instructions. Dealing with mess can feel like an impossible task. It just keeps coming back. Well, today we're brought to you by the organization experts, IKEA. IKEA knows we all have those areas in our homes consumed by mess, whether it be that chair that collects all your clothes or the monstrous pile under your bed. That's why IKEA makes affordable wardrobe organizers, underbed storage, and other solutions to help you easily take back that chair and conquer the mess monster under your bed. Visit IKEA to explore more. You can't afford mess, so IKEA makes storage affordable. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, and this week we'll look at HBO's real-life disaster series, Chernobyl. And one of our favorite TV shows from last year is back with a second season. We're talking about Killing Eve from BBC America. Joining me to get that done and a whole lot more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist, back in the podcasting den with me, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. And you're going to do the best you can vocally tonight. We're not going to push you. All right. But I will tell you, you better do the ad transitions because I am terrible at them. Uh, you did okay, I thought. <laughs> Barely. I thought you did okay. Oh, you're very sweet. <laughs> I don't think I did so okay. <laughs> also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, certified cat lady, and quasi-professional ghost hunter, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. Hello, that is me, yes. Um, just stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, our captain of woke cynicism and the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, our Patreon book club host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Dosvidanya. Appropriate. Although nobody in that show has a Russian accent, they are all British, which we are mm-hmm. going to talk about. Because we can't not. Uh, Well, before we get the show kicked off this evening, I just want to do the quick promotional section of the show. For our Patreon people, Leave It to Bricker, Laura's Patreon-exclusive podcast, has a brand new episode that dropped with murders and ghosts in it. And on the after show that drops at the same time as this show, so the crime writers on after show that goes with this episode, you're going to hear Kevin Flynn's wonderful daughter weighing in with her distinctively teenage take on that Zac Efron, Ted Bundy movie we reviewed a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Should I just play a tiny clip of what she has to say about that? Yeah, go ahead. We were just at dinner, and we were talking about the Zac Efron, Bundy film that we discussed on our podcast, like not this podcast, but before. What was the name of that movie? It's called... It's hard to remember, extremely right? Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile. Possibly the longest name for a movie. And it came up sort of casually at dinner... And your dad was like, oh, what'd you think of that? I believe I said hot. <laughs> okay. That's why we're here. Put your face by the microphone. We need to talk. 
All right. Plus, we're going to talk about a lot more of the stuff we talked about on today's show. And you can hear that all on the Crime Writers On after show. Now, Kevin, you have uh, some vocal issues, so we're not going to push you. So I'm just going to kick off the show with this. Are you ready? Yeah. True True Crime crime Podcast Update. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. All right, Kevin. Now, we do have a True Crime Podcast update about a little show we listened to called West Cork. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That was the Audible podcast about the unsolved murder of Sophie Toscan de Plantier, a French woman who was murdered in Ireland in 1996. The trial of Ian Bailey, we heard a lot about in that podcast started this week what is going on so um the french justice system is trying him in absentia for the murder they have a law that a french citizen they can uh prosecute someone for killing a a french citizen even if it didn't happen in france really or french territory so this is the the law in which they are uh, going after ian bailey and his uh his trial as of this taping is underway so is he in the courtroom? He's not. He's still in Ireland. Hmm. Um, it's kind of interesting. They twice have tried to extradite. The French have tried to get him extradited. Yeah. And the Irish courts uh, would not recognize the warrant. Hmm. They said that, that the French had problems with it. But if he is convicted, well, that might be a whole other kettle of fish. Yeah. He's actually not allowed to leave Ireland. Hmm. I guess if he does, if he leaves that jurisdiction, he's subject to arrest. And so he like wasn't able to go to his mother's funeral in, in England. Mm. So he's kind of staying where he is for now. Yeah. So is there a sequel to the West Cork podcast in the works? Uh, I had heard something someplace, but uh, more likely there's going to be a, a documentary. Yeah. The guy from the podcast is name is Jim Sheridan. Mm-hmm. I think it was the, the he's a he's a film producer and. He did say he was working on a uh, a documentary about the case. So we'll probably see it before we hear it. Well, we also might see it before we hear it because the Audible podcast no longer exists. It's on Audible. It's on Audible. It's also but on- But it's, yeah. it's not public anymore. Yeah. I mean, that's originally how you know it was. Remember, after we reviewed it, there was a buzz about it. Audible had to- Make it public, right? You know, for a short time, and then put it back behind their firewalls. Yeah, so it's hard to find this West Cork podcast. It is, but if you blog as many time hours on Audible as you do, <laughs> no uh, one logs as many hours on Audible. You should as be I able do. to find West Cork. Literally, no one. Toby recommended a book series on this show last week by another Australian mystery novelist named Gary Disher. And I'm already halfway through book two yeah. of that series. Oh, yeah? <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> it's good, right? Wow. And this was after I, before I started listening to his recommendation, I had to finish a series. I, I had to finish a book and a half before I started listening to this brand new series that Toby recommended that is not new. It's been out for a while. I, I really do think that if there were a competition for audiobook consumption, I don't even listen on one and a half speed. I listen on regular 1.0 speed. But I listen, I listen at work. I listen all the time. There's so many wifely duties. All the time. Not being accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, um, this is not a product endorsement, but the advent of the AirPod has also really helped me mm-hmm. because I'm not like super obviously walking around with a white cord sticking out of my ears yeah. all the time at work. It's a white stick. My hair covers the white stick. All right. Oh. Well... I think we should start the show and talk about our first review of the evening. That is HBO's Chernobyl. What are the good we did? It doesn't matter. 
What does matter is that to them, justice was done. See, a just world is a sane world. There was nothing sane about Chernobyl. Ugh. <laughs> Call it... <laughs> Call it the feel-bad show of the summer. HBO and Sky Atlantic have teamed up for a five-part series called Chernobyl. This docudrama recounts the Russian nuclear accident from 1986 through the eyes of scientists, citizens, and apparatchiks who tried to make sense of an emergency that quickly threatened an entire continent. I'm pleased to report that the situation in Chernobyl is stable. In terms of radiation... I'm told it's the equivalent of a chest X-ray. No, Chernobyl is on fire. And every atom of uranium is like a bullet, penetrating everything in its path. Metal, concrete, flesh. Now Chernobyl holds over three trillion of these bullets. Some of them will not stop firing for 50,000 years. Though we know today that the truly existential threats of the accident were mostly avoided, the series is fraught with near misses and disasters within disasters. We know going in that Chernobyl will be scary and depressing, but will it also be entertaining? The final episode of Chernobyl airs this week. Of course, we're taping this in a bit of a time shift, so we're going to be talking about episodes one through four. And spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from Chernobyl, so if you want to remain spoiler-free, go to the time code listed in our show notes for our thumbs up or thumbs down, or in Laura's case, perhaps thumbs way down review of Chernobyl. Now, at the beginning of this show, we open with the scene of Valery Legasov, who's played by Jared Harris, who you might remember as Lane Price for Mad Men, mm-hmm. uh, recording his observations for someone and then committing suicide. Uh, what does this tell us about what the story is going to be about? Kevin, I know you had some thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting setup uh, to start right away with him being in despair after this. I think it and and what he's talking about when he's recording his thoughts that I guess he's leaving for a journalist, I think we're led to believe. I think it, it sets it up to the idea of what we're going to see. The theme is going to be about incompetence and cover up and blame in addition to being about disaster. Mm. So I think it clues the audience into, yeah, you're going to see a lot of this, this stuff about how the explosion happened and the fire and the literal fallout but also be keeping an eye on the human drama here. You know, what happened because of the lies that were told and the roadblocks that were put up by the party. Right. Now, Toby, it is really, really hard to do a disaster movie that is suspenseful and scary when it's based on a real event that many of us remember. And we sort of, you know, can very easily Wikipedia, you know, the the fallout of it, no pun intended, and sort of what happened. And I'm just going to tip my hand. I think Chernobyl is brilliant because it manages to create a real feeling of horror and dread with real life events that you can easily Wikipedia. What do you think of the delivery of this? I know that you are very often critical of things that should have suspense that don't and how hard it is to build that. Do you think that Chernobyl succeeds in terms of suspense and horror and as a disaster film? Yeah, no, I think it totally does. I think it's incredibly well done. I think part of it is they give you individuals to care about. So even if you know sort of generally what happened, 
you don't know sort of the fate of these different people based on decisions they're making. It, it goes it goes on throughout, but particularly in the first episode when they're not quite sure what's going on or what the what the extent of what's happening, and so the, so they're <laughs> they're making decisions based on sort of suppositions. Mm. Um, and and then denial. What kind of, <laughs> right, right. And then what? And then what are the consequences of those? And then as things kind of you know move throughout, you see you know some people being like super selfless and just like I'm going to save millions of people, but I know I'm going to die this like horrendous death in like two weeks if right. I if I go ahead and do this. I think by humanizing like these different little parts of it. I think that is what makes it suspenseful in that way. But then I also think, you know, the directing, I think, mm-hmm. is really, really good. The scenes on the roof when they send these guys in for like 90 seconds because that's all they can possibly do with the radiation as high as it is, mm-hmm. is a sort of spectacular scene. Yep. Um, well, the water scene, too. The, the divers in the tunnels, right? Like, yeah. Like, nothing really happened. That's a, This is why it's, like, so brilliant to me. Like, in these scenes... Not a whole lot actually happens except for the sound effects they have with the Geiger counter and the music. And the sort of layers of production, the flashlights, the lighting. It's crazy scary. Yeah. No, it's it's a, you know, it succeeds. It's kind of weird to say it this way because it is something that is based on, on true events and lots and lots of people died. But the way... It's sort of shot as a very effective kind of horror movie in some ways mm. with a sort of invisible menace. Yep. So, yeah, no, I thought I thought all that stuff was, was really, really well done. Now, Laura Bricker had a very hard time watching this. And I know that yeah. because her first yes. note to me is, I could barely bring myself to watch this. It is so depressing. Well, I mean, it's just horrible. I, you know, I remember when this happened. I, I can't I think I was in like elementary school probably when this happened and, and the aftermath and Yes, there was characters we could follow, but there's nothing uplifting about any of this. And I'm just like, I don't want to watch people with their radiation burns and then the next stage where they're dying. I, it just was overall just so dark and depressing that I had to sort of tune out like half of what I was watching because I was like, God, why is this supposed to be entertaining? It's it just to me, I just I can't imagine how this is something that has any spark of something that would make you feel <laughs> enticed to watch any more of it. Right. Um, but that's just me. I, I just I just was like, and I'm glad I didn't continue. I, I actually fell asleep at the end of episode three, and I'm glad that I did. Yes. <laughs> From and, what I've well, heard. Well, I, I will say, Kevin and I just watched episode four right before we taped this podcast. And anybody in our audience who is interested in watching this, because I think three of us, I'm not speaking to figure, at least two of us so far, uh, think this is great. It is maybe, no, definitely, I think the darkest thing I've ever seen on regular television. Like, not like, you know, something that I've downloaded and watched on purpose that's like a horror movie. This shit is dark. And episode four in particular, which we just finished, episode three is very, very dark, people melting. But episode four is yeah. perhaps the darkest hour of television I've ever seen. And Laura Bricker, you might want to close your ears as we just briefly talk about why, Kevin, you want to just tell our audience, give them the trigger warning on that? Yeah, trigger warning. Uh, episode four is the part of the cleanup where they have to go town by town and not only raise all of the wildlife, they have to go and kill any animals that are left over. And that just doesn't mean the wildlife. That means domesticated pets that are left behind. And there is a crew 
that we see that follows and just goes from area to, to area hunting dogs yeah. and having to dispose of the bodies. And you realize why it is necessary mm. and that it is a truth of what happened, which is why you need to have it if you're making the, the show. Right. But it is, I think it is tougher to watch it than it is if they were like going around it's killing so, people. It's and so disturbing. It's yeah. so disturbing. Well, it's it's funny because I am one of those people like I can't watch things where animals die. I can't. Mm-hmm. This I actually could watch even though it was fucking brutal because there is part of you as a viewer that knows that these animals are going to die. They're actually trying to be humane and they're also trying to keep the radiation from spreading to other parts of the country. Yeah. And you also know that all of these dogs are going to die because they've all, you know, they're eating the chickens and the chickens are eating the grass and like they're all going to die and it's actually less cruel to kill them it this way. It is the most humane way. But there is a child who's part of the dog murder squad, basically a young boy who's been drafted oh. and he's too young to even have fought in the military and he joins this troop of like grizzled soldiers. Well, he's like 17 or 18. Right, so you basically have a don't child. Don't say child. Well, it's, you make it sound like he was a 10-year-old Yeah, but he sort of has like a childlike demeanor, you know, and uh-huh. it's, it's fucking awful. And it is like many things, and sadly, harder to watch things happen to animals than people in some ways. Mm-hmm. But so I will say to viewers, if you're like interested in watching this, but you have like a hypersensitive, like you could skip episode four and just read a recap of it because like it's fucking awful. But also, so is super good. Sorry, Laura, I think it's super good. Now, Laura, I have a, I have a, another follow up question to ask yes. you. Um, yes. One thing that we see a lot in Chernobyl, and I thought of you a lot and how this must be like raising your hackles, is we see a lot of mm-hmm. smart science people mm-hmm. and a lot of women telling men who are literally yeah. just saying it's not true it's not true it's not true yeah some hard scientific truths and like none of the many that either won't listen or they're in denial or they're just lying yeah now that that was the other part i was just like fuck this like so we've got you know <laughs> you, you know you watch like the start of the second episode there's nurses dumping contaminated clothes you can see him for 30 minutes not a minute more and the men are just like, whatever, pour me another vodka. And the women are like, hey, like the scientist people are like, this is really bad. And this is going to happen. And you need to do this. And they're like, yeah, no, Mm-mm. don't don't worry about it. And I'm just like, because, ah! you know, uh, we all know we lived like we were alive when this happened. We know how bad this is. And you're watching this. And I'm just like, oh, I, so that really threw me through the roof there because it was just so frustrating to watch the, you know, continued cover up of what was happening and trying to minimize what was happening while realizing this was really fucking serious stuff. I mean, this was horrible when the one woman is talking about how, you know, if the pressurized water that's now contaminated is allowed to, you know, explode. I mean, it was just horrendous what was going to happen. Yeah. So anyway, that that's all. I just, yeah, that part particularly really pissed me off. Did anybody else think about um, Clive and Bundy? In what way? I mean, that was that was the whole reason why the Bundys were suspicious of the government and our anti-government is because, you know, the government was doing nuclear tests, mm. just like upwind from them and be like, oh, don't worry about it, you know, just stay inside, you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that's right. So you know, it's not it's not just the it's not just the Soviets. Well, Toby, I'll just have you know, one of Laura's notes said, um, because she sent me a bunch of notes about how she doesn't know, like, who would enjoy watching this. And then she wrote, I suspect Toby is the target audience for this show. <laughs> it's made for me. <laughs> you and you I alone. just knew you would like it. <laughs> <laughs> I knew he would like it, too. Um, but, Toby, you actually had a very interesting note, too, about sort of the, the metaphor of Chernobyl historically. Yeah. Well, I mean, I you know, it's certainly not an original observation, but I think this 
this movie does a really good job of Chernobyl being a, a symbol of sort of the rot in the Soviet system, you know, and the denial that people were, that some people were having, particularly in the party, and just, you know, keep motoring on, just just act like there's no problem and all this stuff, while there are other people saying this is totally screwed up and it's all about to fall apart. You actually literally have Gorbachev in a room sort of facing up to it, sort of like he did more or less with the, with the Soviet system. I think they do a, a pretty good job with that and that they're not like super heavy handed, but that you do get to see that. And I think they're particularly, there's a scene where like, you know, the city council or whatever they are come together in the bunker and that old guy gives this speech about patriots and, and all this stuff and everybody claps for him. And it's like, oh, we're just going to pretend like nothing happened and we'll continue on. And then I don't know if it's the next episode or two episodes later, you see this old guy, just the same guy, just getting kind of like forcibly evacuated on a bus. Right. You know, you can't soldier on the way you used to. It's a little bit like the hypocrisy of the Handmaid's Tale people when you see them in those like uh, flashback scenes. You know, before yep. they know mm-hmm. when, they, when they were planning their coup and how like utopian it was going to be. And then you see them living in this like horrible system afterwards. I, it's funny because I, I there was a, a lot of character turns like that where somebody would be instrumental and then you would just see them helpless uh, with the effects of the radiation that, you know, their the technology brought like. In the opening episode, there's that super obnoxious plant manager dude who's just like keeps sending guys. He's like, there's no there's no meltdown. No, it didn't explode. And like oh, literally it all guy. happened. And then there's a scene of him in that same bunker room and all of a sudden he vomits. And so, you know, and, you, and part of me is like, yes, yes. which is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like his comeuppance. Right. Style thing, Kevin. Yeah. Everybody on the show is British because it's a British production. Yep. No one's doing a fake Russian accent. Everyone is just acting with their straight up. British yeah, accents. Yeah. Does that work? It does. Well, I mean, I think it does for American audiences mm-hmm. because it does give it a sense of being uh, international. Yeah. You know, I, th- I think you're also able to determine, American ears can still de- determine a high class British accent and working class. It's funny, the miners yes. seem to have yeah. like a little bit of a Scottish accent, yes. you know, exactly. sort of, totally. you know, to show that they're kind of salt of the earth guys. From elsewhere. From elsewhere. What's as big as a house? Barns 20 liters of fuel every hour. Puts out a shitload of smoke and noise. And cuts an apple into three pieces. A Soviet machine made to cut apples into four pieces! <laughs> And yeah, you know, and I also think that a lot of prestige things, that is a TV style thing. You know, the, the prestige programming has either A list Hollywood actors or it has a British cast. That's right. So I, I think it works. Sure. Let's talk about those miners for a second. Okay. What do you think of those guys? A, they're badass. B, they're nude. Thoughts? <laughs> well, they were digging a hole. Didn't I mean? I mean, the character—they almost reminded me of like we were watching that scene when you know the minister of coal or whatever first uh-huh. goes to recruit them. How many men do you have on this shift? Forty-five here, hundred in total. I need all one hundred men to gather their equipment and get on the trucks. Do you? Do well. That's classified. Come on, then. Start shooting. You haven't got enough bullets for all of us. Kill as many as you can. Whoever's left, they'll beat the living piss out of each of you. You can't talk to us like that. Shut the fuck up. This is Tula. 
This is our mine. We don't leave unless we know why. It was almost like a Game of Thrones scene where you sort of had like this tribe of sort of outlander people who were being forced to do something, but also the only ones who can do it. So they have a ton of power. They're all going to die. They mm-hmm. know it, but that's just duty. Mm-hmm. And it's magnificent. And it's also true. Like, were you aware of that being true when you watched it? Obviously, it's dramatized, but like, it's incredible. Yeah, I, I didn't really know sort of the, the finer details about all the different people that had to get together and the things that they had to do. I mean, in part because like this is behind the Iron Curtain, so it's not like a hurricane disaster or, you know, ground zero where, you know, we had media on scene and we were consuming it and such. There was a lot of mystery in the West about what was happening, and they've played that. I find all of that really interesting, and I think it's one of the reasons why they want to tell the story about the people who were there and about the reasons and the causes, because, I mean, I, I think I know modern history pretty well. And if you asked me, you know, what happened at Chernobyl, I would have said meltdown, or I probably would have said fire, but I wouldn't have remembered explosion, mm. and I certainly would have known what caused the explosion, yeah. which is one of the plot points they put out as a question very early on. It's not just going to be, look at everybody with the radiation burns. It's going to be, how did this happen? Right. So, so keep me going that way. Part of the story reminds me of, and I'm not going to remember the name of the movie, but it starred Matthew McConaughey as a naval officer. It might have been World War II, or Toby, maybe you can help me if, you, if this... If it pops to mind. You think Toby would have seen a movie with Matthew McConaughey in it? Well. I definitely would have. I remember that one. (laughs) But I'm hoping maybe we'll have Lincoln Navigator as a sponsor soon. Yeah. Part of the theme was, you know, he was, the Admiral was like, you know, you got a good crew there. And he's like, yeah, I would, I would die for him. So that's not the mark of a good commander. Of course, you would die for them. Can you order one of them to die for you? Hmm. And at the end, he had to like grab a guy and order him to do that. And it's sort of like a reverse on like the thing that we all think about for yeah. like courage. Yeah. And I'm reminded of this a lot. Yeah. When you're like, well, we need guys to go down there and turn that valve. Right. And we need a bunch of guys and they will die. Yeah. But we have to send them to their death because if we lose a thousand soldiers, we're going to save the lives of millions of 50 people. 50 million people. 50 million yeah. people. Yeah. You know? And so that that's a big thing. Yeah. And um, I, I think that it, whether it's meant to or not, it certainly captures that pathos. Now, Toby, I just keep thinking about whether or not there is an American story that could be told in this way. And I think that you sent me a note that says something similar. And I just want to throw a theory out at you why there isn't. <laughs> because I think so much of the Chernobyl disaster story has to do with something they say in episode four, which is that this is a country built And this is like a a party built on doing anything to avoid embarrassment and shame. So everything is a secret. Everything about how they operate. It's all about sort of the hubris of appearing to be the best and appearing to be in control. And while I think in the United States we have some of those same attitudes, we also don't have the ability to have a story like this happen and not immediately make it about the heroes, right? Like... You know, the the pat on the back, the and I'm sorry, this is I don't mean this in an offensive way, but like we tend to put slogans on disasters when they happen right away. Mm-hmm. You know, Boston strong. You know, we sort of have that in America, like the immediate sort of like glorification of pulling together. Never the, forget. Remember the. Yeah. Album. Yeah. The, the, you know, exactly. The, you know, post 9-11 stuff. And this was just a very different culture and a very different moment in time where like these people 
didn't have any sense that their heroism would be in any way celebrated because that's just not what the USSR was about. I think that's what makes this like a singular as a disaster story. And, and I think that is why there are very few American disasters that could be put on film this way. I, I think that's a good point. I guess in my mind, it would just be a different sector. Like I think the big short had the potential mm-hmm. to do something like this to show corruption in our financial system. Unless I'm not remembering correctly, it, it kind of punts on that. Yeah. You know, it's mostly about these these sort of oddballs who who figure it all out and make money off of it. You know, there's a different our sort of like soft white underbelly. I, I think is different than the Soviet Union's, but I think there's there's room for that and. It wouldn't be the sort of same sort of physical disaster, you know, millions of people like potentially being irradiated and dying of cancer in a few weeks. You know, it's more sort of financial and uh, class type stuff. I would be surprised if something doesn't come out at some point, but it is kind of striking that this is such a sort of an apt and precise metaphor in addition to being like an actual real thing. I thought it was pretty powerful. Yeah, it actually also made me think a lot about The Americans, which is, I think, one of the greatest series in the history of TV, which, you know, just ended last year, which I feel like if The Americans had, if that story had extended through mm-hmm. 1986, like there would have been a very interesting arc of episodes about Chernobyl, because mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff in The Americans was also real, was also based on a real Russian program and real people. And a lot of the same themes of sort of like selflessness for a greater cause that you know we might disagree with as Americans in our democracy, but like is absolutely built in like to the culture and to the people. Like even in just like the the recent history, so like this happened in '86, like 40 years before, like just the the older generation, you know, they lost more than 25 million people in World War II. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's just it's an incredible, it's staggering numbers. So I think just the the relationship between death and the state is just different than what we have. And I think sort of not – I don't want to say it's necessary that they died, but they're sort of where they are in the world sort of geographically and what things were going on around them. It wasn't as though they really had a, a choice in some of those matters. Right. All right. Well, on that uh, bright and sunny note <laughs> – Let's do what we do, and let's give our thumbs up or thumbs down review. Panel, do you recommend to our listeners, the listeners of Crime Writers On, these fine folks who are listening to our podcast week in and week out, should (laughs) they check out the HBO series Chernobyl? Lara Bricker, I'm going to go ahead and start with you. I'm going to say no. So it's not that this isn't well-produced, well-cast, well-directed, well-made. It's just the subject matter is so dark and depressing. I don't see any reason to relive this unless you really want to be super depressed. I would suggest find something else to watch. What about you, Toby Ball? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Chernobyl? First, I, I was talking to my wife about this. She was actually she flew out of Kiev a week before this happened. Wow. She was on a school trip what? to the Soviet Union. And had been sort of bouncing around, and, and their last stop was in Kiev, and they they left. Holy shit! And then mm. a week later, Chernobyl happened. So anyway, this is one of my favorite things that I've seen on HBO. It's really good, and it's serious, and it, like like Laura said, I, I it's not there's no laughs, and it's it's a tough go. I I just think it's really well done. I think there's a lot of of, of stuff to think about. 
I think the acting is great. They do such a good job, I, I assume, with scenery and atmosphere and stuff that it's just very, it's very evocative. I, I think it's really good on like almost every level. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, even though I find that it's super depressing and super dark and episode four almost killed me to watch, <laughs> I think this is great. And I think it's going to go down after a period of time. I think people are going to discover it and watch it. And I could imagine this in 10 years time being one of those things to make like the all time great list when you sort of talk about prestige TV and they make these all time greatest lists that include things like The Wire and that include things like Deadwood, you know, other great HBO shows. And I know, I mean, I can just tell this, the show wasn't necessarily made for HBO, wasn't necessarily made for an American audience. And it definitely doesn't align with the sensibilities, I think, of what American audiences usually get in prestige TV. But I think it's freaking great and so suspenseful and so scary in a way that I can tolerate and fascinating and well acted. And I hate to say it. I think it's super entertaining, even though it's really, really dark. Sorry, Laura Bricker. Uh, What about you, Kevin? I am a thumbs up. Um, I think that this is this generation's the day after. Except that this really happened. And it's good. And the day after is real cheesy. You I just remember really, it being scary. Yeah, but. <laughs> well, I, I was a young guy, so everything about it scared me. You know, in the finale, I, I think at some point you have to draw the parallel between nuclear accident and nuclear war. What role did this play in changing the military mindset about nuclear deterrence within the Soviet Union? Hmm. You say if this was equivalent to one missile and they had to do all of this, full out war the reality of what the day after would actually be, I think, probably changed a lot of minds. Mm. But as far as this TV show, the acting is great. It is super atmospheric. It, it isn't a, a, a feel-good drama, but it is an important drama, very well done. Moving on. It was one of our favorite shows from 2018. BBC America's Killing Eve just wrapped up its second season. The lights are on, but you're not home. I found Villanelle. I think I might have killed her. Congratulations. Emmy winner Sandra Oh reprises her role as Eve Palastri, the MI6 analyst obsessed with the delightfully psychopathic assassin Villanelle, played by the brilliant Jodie Comer. You can't sleep, you can't eat, there's no doubt you're in deep. Sometimes when you love someone, you do crazy things. What are you looking for? A kitchen knife. What for? In season two, we find Eve and Villanelle once again circling each other until the British convince the killer to work for them on a case involving a dangerous tech executive. The audience get what it wants, more of Eve and Villanelle together, but does the show work better when the frenemies are apart? Killing Eve season one is now available on demand from AMC, and season two is available on BBC America. Something tells me there's going to be a lot of places to watch this show eventually. We are going to be talking about plot points for Killing Eve. So to remain spoiler free, go to the time code listed in our show notes to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down review. Now, I'm just going to throw it out there to start. This season of Killing Eve was a little bit like a J.J. Abrams series for me. 
mm-hmm. where we have Eve and Villanelle thrown together by a amazing circumstance. We have Eve's boss, Carolyn, who used to be a good guy, now kind of a bad guy. And they bring back a major character, Constantine from the dead, even uh-huh. though the audience saw him die. Uh-huh. This is a terrible hug. Then maybe you shouldn't have shot me. You're not still mad about that. I aimed to make sure I didn't kill you. No, you didn't. You aimed at my heart. Nice and clean, just like you taught me. (laughs) Is all of this J.J. Abrams bullshit stuff a betrayal of the audience, Kevin? Do you think it works? Has the show jumped the shark? What do you think? Uh, A little bit of yes, a little bit of no. I mean, the first season in and of itself was perfect. I mean, it could have ended there, and it would have just been wrapped up so nicely. And what happens a lot of uh, times when you kind of come up with a sequel or a, a second act or, you know, something that wasn't sort of part of the original concept of the story, story's finished, now we got to start it all over again. I'm thinking like maybe like season two of Stranger Things. Yeah. You tend to sometimes get out of the blocks like that, and things are kind of pasted together in a weird way. Can we find out what we really liked about season one and replicate it or or do something similar? So there was something, I mean, the first two episodes were essentially, you know, the fallout from the season finale. And we know it's like, okay, they're just, both of our characters are going to get back to where they belong. Mm. And then episode three, whatever the season's really about, is when we're going to get into it. And whereas we thought, I thought this was going to be about the ghost, mm. that sort of came and went. Right. And shifted and, you know, it didn't really fire on all cylinders for me. Well, the season kind of started where season one left off, you know, it started exactly there. But it does start with this sort of protracted storyline where Villanelle is being held hostage in the super creepy suburban guy's house. <laughs> <laughs> the dollhouse uh-huh. man? You thought I'd be an easy target, didn't you? Thought you'd take advantage of the Good Samaritan. I see what you're doing. Don't think I haven't noticed. Playing the innocent... Batting your eyelashes, getting me to wait on your hand and foot, feed you, look after you, give you everything you want. And what do I get, hmm? What do I get? Nothing! Nothing! Why don't I get anything? It was a surprise! And you're just kind of rooting for her to get out, even though we know objectively, like, she's a bad guy, like, she's a killer, but we also love her. Laura, what did you think about how, like, the story arc unfolded in this season? I kind of liked it because it, it, it's quirky. And that's what I like about this show. So, you know, right off the bat, you know, before we're even in the hospital with Villanelle, we've got Eve's character um, totally freaking out, thinking she's killed Villanelle, eating a giant bag of candy. And then in the hospital, when Villanelle escapes, you know, we have this sort of bizarre, she tries, takes this, you know, boy's little colorful PJ set, like the footy PJs. Then once we got into Dollhouse Man's house, I was all in because when we find that he's got his mother locked in the back room and (laughs) she may actually really not have dementia. She may Uh just be pretending. Um, Uh I was kind of rooting for that guy to get killed. And I'm like, oh, my God, what's wrong with me? But I'm like, just kill him and be done with this. I hate this guy. I mean, he did die kind of a sad death, but it looked like it went pretty quickly. And I loved when the mother just, you know, the old lady just takes off down the street. Oh, yeah. And and we also know that she participated because we see the toilet brush sticking out of his mouth, right? Right, Like, she's the one who had to put it there. So it was a little slow, I will say, you know, getting, you know, through that part where she's recovering from the stab wound, getting out of the hospital. But then all of a sudden, I'm like, wait a minute, now we're all on the same team. So there was a little bit, I, I feel like maybe I missed a piece of 
I'm just not sure who's in charge here. Right. Um, like, who are the evil villains? Who are the good people? I, I don't know who's masterminding all of what's happening right now. That's why I said it's like a J.J. Abrams plot. This is like every J.J. <laughs> Abrams, like his alias, like over and over and over again. It's like, is Sydney's father good? Is he bad? Is, is Ron Rifkin good? Is he bad? We're on the same team. We're on different teams. That person's my handler. No, they're my enemy. She's my mom. No, she's a killer. <laughs> it's like, it, that is very much how this felt, except for the center core of Villanelle herself, who's a fucking amazing character and is very true to character. I don't know, Toby, what do you think of the way they sort of rolled all of this out in season two and the directions that it went in? My feelings about this show is is I really enjoy it. Like, the plot is almost, like, beside the point in some ways. I mean, I think for the most part, you're just kind of interested in, at least for me, Villanelle in particular, but then also Eve and just kind of what they do and sort of what the machinations are of, like, who's in charge or what the ultimate outcomes of different things are don't seem as sort of important as watching those two people kind of make their way around different situations. Mm. It's, it's weird talking about this and Chernobyl in the think? same <laughs> thing. Cause it's like, it does feel like they're so different. It's like, it'd be like reviewing Beethoven and then like some really good, like pop act or something on the same show. It's, you know, and I was just thinking, like, when um, Constantine comes back, for me, it's like, oh, I get, he's back. You know, it's just, <laughs> like, why not? <laughs> Whereas, like, if something like that had happened in Chernobyl, you'd be like, it would just be so, there'd be such cognitive dissonance. But in Killing Eve, it's like, well, it's more fun to have him around, so why not? Yeah. yeah. At least in my mind, like, that's the way the show should be, is, like, sort of high-end entertainment. Mm. There are times I'm like, wait, who's that again? And then it's like, well, actually, I don't really even care. It's actually high praise. It really is. Kim Bodnia, by the way, plays Constantine, who played also played Martin in the greatest detective noir thing ever, Braun Braun, The Bridge, the mm-hmm. original one. Mm-hmm. I think it's cheating to show you killing somebody on screen and then bringing them back like it was all. I think that's cheating. And I and I yeah. I it just it feels like you can't rely on anything in a show when they do stuff like that because you could then watch a million death scenes and you'll always wonder like did the person really die or didn't they? Now we know that the guy with the axe in his head did actually die, like we hope. Well, wait till season 3. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? But but on the other hand, I do agree with you, Toby, that this is so fun that even the cheating is forgivable. I just worry that it stops being forgivable after a while. I mean, we have this amazing subplot in this season, which we had in season one, where there's a lot of tension around Eve and her marriage. And like, you're rooting for the marriage in one sense, because you know her husband is a good guy. And he's sweet, and he's a teacher, and he also has like a, you know, his mind of his own. It's like He's not just like a foil for Eve. He's like a real character. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in season one, you see it explored in different ways. And in season two, you see it explored in sort of like the tension in their marriage just because like she doesn't give a shit about his job. And, you know, he's supposed to care a lot about her job. But then there's this sort of like over-the-top thing where they separate, and he moves in with his teacher friend and like Villanelle murders. I was like, what? Is, that feels like cheating to me. I don't know, Laura, what do you think? I don't know. I was kind of getting fed up with the husband this season. I was like, is this guy, can he really be this trusting and this clueless and this understanding? <laughs> like, no. 
this guy, no. It, like, come out from under, like, wherever you're hiding and, and acknowledge what's going on. So I was starting to get kind of annoyed with that plot line. So I have to say I was kind of actually rooting for him to be having an affair. Um, but it turned out he wasn't. And now I guess he won't be because he's dead. <laughs> yeah. um, hot for teachers, gone now. <laughs> I, I guess I just felt like that whole plot line to me was frustrating to me just because you know, you're coming into it, you're watching, like, Eve is just so selfish and so oblivious. And then all of a sudden she's like, it, it didn't ring true to me because she goes from that to then she's like trying to seduce him in his classroom, which also I'm like, you didn't care what this guy was doing. He, you won't even like kiss him. So now you want to have sex in his classroom? It will be curious to see for me, you know, what comes next for him now that he's been completely traumatized and seen a little bit of the world that Eve has been living in, though, with Villanelle. Once he gets out of the storage locker that he's in. You know, I didn't love the subplot, but I do think it's interesting that, you know, he gets put in the traditionally female role for most things that are like this, where it's the wife who has these like little things going on and wants the husband to pay more attention to to her life while he's off doing all this daring stuff. Like, he's not like he's a weak character. He's not like somebody who just gets sort of stepped on and walked over, but he's just sort of bewildered, Mm. I think. I mean, there's so much of what they do in the show is sort of this like play on like traditional gender roles in these kinds of shows. And I thought that was clever. But again, like Laura, after a while, it's like, okay, got it. Yeah. You know, we can vote less time to this and sort of move on to the more fun stuff. You mean the fun stuff like Villanelle dressing up as a pig and killing that man <laughs> in the window of the red light district? <laughs> That's great. That, that was a great, great scene, I thought. I thought that whole thing was, was like really sort of a standout, weird, stylized, like when the, when the whole series was over, the season, that was the little moment that really stuck with me. It was that like four or five minutes I thought was really sort of clever and, and distinctive. Kevin, the thing that we always talk about when we watch the show together is Jodie Comer's acting. Mm-hmm. And she is, we make this joke a lot on the show, we call it like face acting, which is really just acting. Yeah. She might be the greatest face actress in the history of face acting. Yes or no? Okay, sure. I mean, she has very expressive, and she uses that in a way that you wouldn't expect from an assassin because she has very childlike expressions, which you know make her character even more interesting. She has a childlike face too. She has this very like wide apart, oversized eyes. She has this like slightly recessed chin. She's like very beautiful in a way that does not read. I mean, she obviously the way they costume her on the show, she can be anything. That's one thing that's really fun about the show is yeah. like all the costumes. And she can be very sophisticated and whatever, but just her face and the close-ups on her face. And they don't do a lot with like putting stuff. I don't make her up. She's always very sort of bare and fresh-faced. And she looks like a 10-year-old girl, mystified, angry, uh, joyful, happy. Like, she is an incredible actress. I mean, I think that Sandra Oh is also wonderful in the show. That, to me, is, like, one of the best things about it is you have these two leading women, and there are so few shows that are as good as this that have two leading women without the need to make it about them vying for the attention of a man. You know what I mean? Right. Do you think, Kevin, that the relationship between them is um, psychological or sexual? I, I mean, I, th- I think it's both. It's it's funny because, you know, the relationship doesn't need to be defined sexually anymore. Although I think, you know, many people sort of want there to be sort of an answer to all things of a, of a television show. Yeah. And that's a big one. So is Eve attracted to 
Villanelle. I mean, we know that Villanelle is attracted to Eve. Is the obsession there partly sexual? Definitely partly sexual. Is it completely sexual? I don't think so. I think there is this uh, darker side, uh, Sandra O's oh own sociopathic tendencies that she's trying to touch on. But I don't really think there's any sort of rivalry like this anywhere on television. Yeah. We also have a very strong female character in Carolyn, you know, the sort of matriarch yeah. meanie of the show who we're at, you know, alternatively rooting for and scared of. So, Toby, what did you think of the end of season two? They go through these tunnels. They come out in that sort of like beautiful part of Rome, that sort of like bucolic ruin. And then something big happens. Why are you being like this? You love me. No. I love you. No. I do. You don't understand what that is. I do. You're mine. No. You are. You're mine. You know, I I thought it was actually pretty good because I think it resolved sort of the psychological aspect where the whole time it's Villanelle's pretty clear what she wants out of that relationship. And I think Eve is not, you know, so at the end she does become clear in her mind what she wants and is upfront about it and being upfront about it has a consequence. And then Villanelle sort of reverts to character you know, I thought it was—I thought it was a good, satisfying conclusion. I think it tied a lot of stuff up uh, very efficiently and in a way that seemed kind of natural. But I do like when you were saying before about when Constantine comes back, and if there's a third season, there is, and uh, Sandra O oh is part of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's going to be some like serious explaining that has to be done because <laughs> they're. I think they've demonstrated they're willing to cheat. I think they've demonstrated it. All right. Well, let's do what we do. I'm going to ask you all as a panel. Do you recommend to our listeners that they check out Killing Eve now that season two has dropped? Lar Bricker, Killing Eve season two. Where are you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for our lovely crime writers on audience. Big thumbs up. This show is still one of my favorites. It's just got such a fun plot. The characters are great. There's a lot of quirkiness involved. Um, you've got a really great dynamic between, uh, you know, Villanelle, the assassin, and Sandra O, oh, uh, Eve's character. I just, I really like this show. What about you, Toby? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Killing Eve season two? Yeah, I really, I really like it too. I, I, I think it's sort of among the more fun shows that we've that we've reviewed. You know, it's just enjoyable. So definitely big thumbs up. Yeah, I'm going to give it a thumbs up, too. I have concerns about the cheating and the J.J. Abrams-ness of it, but I still loved watching it this season, and I would tune in for a third season, and I hope it doesn't go too far down that alias Felicity rabbit hole with characters appearing where they shouldn't. One great thing about this show that we didn't talk about is it's very location porny, which I love. I love like the whole foreign cities, uh, Parisian streets, Roman streets, London streets. I love it. I love everything about that. Love the costuming, the set design, the sort of like whole production design of it. It's just really, really wonderful. And I think the two lead actresses are magnificent. What about you, Kevin? I am also a thumbs up. It's not as good as season one was. That's a very high bar, of course. But I do think that season two is worth your time. The characters are fantastic. I would have liked to have seen a little more thought uh, put into things like the ghost and the 12 and sort of the structure around the situation that they're now they're putting these characters in. 
it is great to just see them together and to sort of see them being themselves and doing the things that we expect them to do. But I think you might want to give them a little more of a structured playground to, to romp around in. It's definitely, you know, one of the best things going on TV. And uh, the cliffhanger at the end of season two is not as great as the cliffhanger at season one, where you just want to see them back together uh, in bed with a knife stuck between them. Yeah. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call... The The crime crime of the week. Of the week. Police in Marlboro, Massachusetts, are looking for a prowler who broke into Nate Roman's house. He says the intruder didn't take a thing. Instead, the stranger cleaned up everything in the house. After vacuuming, making the beds, and scrubbing the john, the prowler left an origami flower on the roll of toilet paper. Everything was tidied up, with the exception of the kitchen. Roman thinks he left the back door unlocked and says the break-in left him feeling, quote, creepy. Police are working on the theory that a cleaning crew may have gone to the wrong house. So, panel, here is hoping this crime spree in Marlboro, Massachusetts continues. My question for you is, Laura Bricker, if these intruders got into your home, what do you hope they would do for you? I mean, I would never turn down cleaning or cat litter box cleaning, but... um, I would say if they could take over homework duty for me, (laughs) I would be like open armed to having them intrude in my house. What about you, Toby? What do you wish that this uh, break in crew would do in your fine home? Well, we're in the middle of a DIY bathroom reno. And uh, so any help with tiling, plumbing, caulking, any (laughs) of that shit would be greatly appreciated. I'm all about the cleaning. Seriously. Like you're going to have... The keys to my house. You can have them. You can take. You can even take stuff if you want. If I come home, my house is clean. It is like a dream. So, Kevin, here's to hoping this crime spree continues. If these intruders got into your house, what are you hoping they would do for you? The taxes. <laughs> <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> yes. There is that. There is that, too. All right. We should probably end it on that note. But before we do, Lara Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? <laughs> We did have a cat of the week. I had this really cute little cat. But after the trauma of listening to you guys talk about this Chernobyl thing, Mm -hmm. I feel compelled to share one of our favorite longtime listeners, Lillian. Um, Remember, she had the Crime Writer Kittens a while back. Yes. Lillian said, if you're watching Chernobyl, you might be interested to know there is an organization that spays, neuters, and vaccinates the dogs of Chernobyl and adopts them out. Wow. So... Check it out um, at cleanfutures.org, the dogs of Chernobyl. That's incredible. All right. Well, Lara Bricker, people want to submit their cats, dogs, guinea pigs, hamsters, and other sundry animals to be Cat of the Week. How can they find you online? At Lara Bricker. I would also like to mention that one of our regular listeners just told me about the My Talking Pet app. And... Fireman Ken is probably going to hunt that listener down and take them out because I'm having <laughs> way too much. Have you seen this, by no, the way? It's no. so awesome. Oh, my God. At Laura Bricker on Twitter, you might see some My Talking Pet soon. And Toby Ball, people want to reach out to you and tell you that they agree with your assessment and mine that Chernobyl is, in fact, a super great show, even though Laura Bricker hates it. How can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball NH. Kevin Flynn, where can our listeners find you on Twitter? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. Of course you are. I love you, Kevin. I'm so glad you're back. I'm happy to be back. I'm sorry I 
kind of a distraction on the You're not a distraction. You're sexy. You're like the Demi Moore of this podcast. <laughs> and if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join the amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page, by the way. Support this show at Patreon.com slash Partners in Crime Media and you will get the Crime Writers On after show, Married with Podcast, Toby Ball Deep Dive Book Club podcast and Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker podcast. Our theme song was performed by the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, also known as Studio C, the closet in our basement where we drink cold vodka from dirty cups to forget about impending catastrophes. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. later. Laura. 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 Where the fuck are you, Laura? There you are. Oh, no, now I can't hear you. Okay, that was weird. Well, let's record a podcast. Are you guys ready? I'm ready. Here we go. Yep. <laughs> Whatever job you need to do out there, grab the right tool to get it done. The new F-150 with an available hybrid engine and up to 7.2 kilowatts of pro power on board to power things on the go. It's not a tool you'll hang in a tool shed, but you can certainly use it to build one. The new 2024 Ford F-150. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024. Optional features the owner's manual for important operating instructions.